So the other day, after Notre Dame opened its college football season with a close win over Florida State, Brian Kelly, the Fighting Irish head coach, did something that drives me to drink. He took an all-time great quotation and butchered it. This happened as Kelly was approached for an interview by an ESPN reporter who asked, what do you think about your team's ability to withstand Florida State's impressive comeback? Kelly replied with, yeah, you know, I'm in favor of execution. Maybe our entire team needs to be executed after tonight. Um, what? The actual line dates back to October 6th, 1980, and the aftermath of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers' 23 to nothing loss at Chicago. A reporter asked John McKay, the Bucks' head coach, so what do you think of your team's execution? And McKay replied, I'm in favor of it. It was perfect. Perfectly executed, perfectly poignant, my favorite sports quote of all time. And Brian Kelly not only stole it, but ruined it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jeanette Howard, the fantastic former, and it's a long list, writer for The National, for Sports Illustrated, for Newsday, for The Athletic, for a million different places. And she's also the co-author of Billie Jean King's new best-selling book, All In, an Autobiography. This is episode number 224. Let's sing some yang. All right, Jeanette. So I was thinking about something. I was looking at your resume, and I was thinking how um, if you go on like baseballreference.com, just as an example, and you, yeah. and you click on a player, it'll tell you people who had like similar careers to that player. And I feel like you and I have actually had fairly similar. I was thinking the same thing. That's so funny. We both wrote for Newsday. We both wrote for Sports Illustrated. We both wrote for The Athletic. Um, Yeah, I feel like I'm not saying we'd be like number one, like absolutely similar, but we've had like comparable, weird kind of parallel run. (laughs) You might be my brother, long lost brother. Oh, yeah. Who knew? Let me answer first. I mean, so, all right. I'm always fascinated by this. And I had a long talk. Uh, on the show with John Wertham about this. We're both at a point in our career where it's a little bit weird, where you're at this age where you've been around a long time and you've accomplished a good amount, probably what you wanted to accomplish. But you're also sort of like, at least for me, you're kind of like, well, I don't want to do really cheap freelance anymore. And there isn't a big magazine to write for anymore. And websites seem to be hiring cheaper and cheaper people or going to videos. Like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Well, that's why I'm in books. Because, uh, and not that that industry hasn't been slammed either. But um, I was at ESPN for 10 years. And after that round of layoffs, um, I don't even know how many rounds I had been through where they miss you, they miss you, they miss you, you know, they miss you. And then sixth or seventh time at a place, they finally whack you. They go salary hunting or they go whatever for experience or whatever. But um, the, after the ESPN thing, that was 2017. And uh, I went to the athletic briefly and I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I just like, I felt like that. I love thinking about stuff. I love learning stuff. I love writing. I love people, you know, talking to people, all that stuff. I feel like, you know, I was telling somebody when I did this, this latest book is that when I got into journalism in the, um, in the late seventies, I'm 60. When I got into journalism, it was seen as a form of public service. 
back then. It was not so long after Watergate and the whole thing. And, and it was something like you thought it was a way to do good in a way. Right. And so um, it does matter to me, like the venue and, and if there's any overarching meaning and all those things. So that's why I've gone to books. Cause I think it's, you know, I've always preferred long form and I think that it's a more contemplative thoughtful thing. And this way you get to control, control your destiny at least somewhat more than the day to day, you know, like toss, like you feel like you're in a, a dryer on a tumble cycle, you know? <laughs> right. Wait, I have a conversation. This is a conversation I've never had. Okay. You and I were working for the athletic at the same time. Yeah. And it was basically me, you, Phil Taylor, Lisa Olson, I think we're writing columns every week for the athletic. Right. That's a pretty established force. I'm not saying like, you know, we're yeah. we that's a pretty good foursome with a lot of experience and blah, blah, blah. And when I got, we weren't, I wasn't hired. I was doing, it was basically freelance. You were probably the same. I don't know. We got X amount per week. And I was told, oh, it's going to be great. And, uh, and you get, we're going to do it where if you get X number of clicks or subscribers, you get X amount of money and that'll be great and blah, blah, blah. And it kind of just petered out where they, one day they were like, yeah, we're not really doing this. I never saw any money for uh, clicks or views or anything like that. Just one day they were kind of like, see ya. And I was like, oh, Okay. And I was wondering what your experience here was like, if that happened to you as well. Or I, you know, I, they approached me to write for them. I was, I was, you know, very um, excited to do it. it. It was on contract. And, and the first sort of ominous thing was like, well, you know, pitch us a list of ideas and we'll tell you if we like any. So you already don't feel like you're part of the process, right. like that you're, you know, and, and there was sort of this illusion that we're going to, so we're going to be hiring staffers in the future, which, you know, would be preferable for a lot of reasons. But um, no, I just part of the thing that made me tired of the whole thing was that that change in philosophy, because initially it was like we want national columns. Then they came back and said, oh, national columns. Nobody wants them anymore. We want to do long form. But then it was like they wanted you to do these these um, really high quality long form stories, but they didn't want to pay you very much and they didn't want you to travel and they you know, I don't even know if they would have paid expenses. So then it's like, it's kind of a, a ridiculous exercise, especially if you're committed to doing something well, you know? And so I just thought this is a dead end and, and, you know, it, it might work for beat writers or people that are on staff, but it wasn't going to work for me. And so I thought I had to, to come up with some different alternatives. I'm glad they're still around. I, you know, in the beginning, I wondered if, if it was an enterprise, like a lot of things where they just, they get it up and running and then they sell it for a zillion bucks and then they don't care what happens to the people that are there, but they, you know, they've, they still own it. So that's good. Do you miss print? Are you someone who's like, ah, oh, man, print? No, I, I actually think um, so many stupid things were done that it's, it's kind of one of those things. If you look at it as a bloodless sort of business enterprise, they deserve the troubles they've had because they, they were slow, slow to adjust. Even, you know, when I, I remember when I worked at the Washington Post, they were very slow to go digital and do a website. And this was the mid nineties. And to their credit, they did this kind of me culpa story about how we blew it. We blew $30 million on something that didn't work. Donnie Graham, Catherine Graham's son commissioned the story and Kara Swisher, who now is at the New York Times and worked on staff, did it. And it was basically this self-examination of what they did wrong. But I remember the time I really thought, I, like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm just going to throw myself off the balcony <laughs> was when I was at Newsday. And I went to this talk at, in New York at some um, 
what's it called? The Century Club. And there was a guy from the Times and there's, you know, they supposedly were on the ball and had it going on and figuring out a little bit, you know, the gold standard. And this guy showed up in a bow tie and he said, uh, I just want to tell you about something I learned about on the way over here today. It's called a podcast. Oh, no. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> I thought, like, it's over. You know, like, it's so fucking over. <laughs> I remember, and there was a balcony, and I looked at it, and I thought, like, <laughs> if anybody asks, they'll just ask what he talked about, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, this has been, like, a 20-year recurring psychosis, and you just get to the point where, no, I don't miss it, and I, I wish that they could figure it out better, and I think... Um, I'm not sure they still have, like, even this is weird. We, this is sort of self um, referential, but it's an, it's a current example. The book we just wrote, you know, Billie Jean King book just made the bestseller list. And the review came out on the web on August 17th. They ran it in the book review two weeks later. <laughs> then we made the bestseller list, but the book review, the, the week that the, the book, you know, the New York Review of Books, the week, the week that the review was in, the bestseller list didn't correspond to the actual list. Yeah, right, right. So it's like, no wonder. No wonder. It's just there's three things going on at the same time, and you're like, what the hell? Yeah. Did I just read that or not, you know? I've never understood that with the times list. You actually yeah. you find out you're on it, and then you have to wait two weeks to see that you're on in print. It's never made any sense. But then it's online. So it's yeah. like, I don't, I don't get it, but um, I don't have to. <laughs> no. um, wait, so you alluded, I wanted to ask you a lot about this. So you, you uh, Billie Jean King's autobiography, all in. And um, I was thinking about something funny. My first job in journalism was at the Nashville, Tennessean, and I did a story about sports books. And I got a big <laughs> interview. I don't want to brag. I got a big <laughs> phone interview with Jack McCallum. And- wow. I was so excited because he had a book that just came out, Shack Attack with Shaquille O'Neal. And I was like 22 years old and I asked him, so who did more of the writing, you or Shaquille O'Neal? <laughs> so you, um, who did more of the writing, Jeanette? You or, or Billy. Billy. No, Billy. No, I have to say, in, in total seriousness, Billy, um, she works she works verbally but she um she went over every line and every word and we did it together and we didn't do sessions where i send her copy she sends it back edited i would write passages we would get on the phone or you know do this and talk on facetime and we um we wrote it that way and so she she actually did contribute and she's got that old time grammar training. And there was, I remember there was a line about, this is how minute and perfectionist she is. She only has one sibling. And she, and the line read as the eldest child. And she, she said, shouldn't it be elder? Oh. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, she's highly engaged and she's, she's got um, a lot of, um, you know, things that she wants to say. She knows what she wants to say. And, and so, um, it, it's more a question of finding the narrative arc and eliminating stuff because she's done so much. Right. So it might be just because I'm an asshole, but the idea of writing a book with somebody has never really appealed to me. Um, 
I think because I like having my own voice and I like being the narrator and that whole thing and blah, blah, blah. So it seems kind of hard to write in someone else's voice and to take and, and to collaborate and blah, blah, blah. Am I overstating that? No, I, it's different. I, I had only done a few things in the past, like uh, first person stuff where you interview somebody at length and as a device, you write it in first person. You know, I had never done anything like this. And really, um, I had never thought about doing it. I had been asked a few times, but it was, you know, I was just, the reason I wanted to do this was she's such a consequential figure um, in history. And I had known her since 1987 when I was covering the NBA, I was at the Grand Hyatt in New York and she was in the dining room and I walked up to her and I said, thank you for making it possible. I introduced myself and I said, thank you for making it possible for me to be a sports writer. Wow. Because women's sports writing at that time had just started when I was in college, which, you know, and so, um, and it was very contentious and all that, but none of it would have happened without Title IX and her and a bunch of other stuff. And so um, I'd known her for a long time and, um, you know, I love her to death and I just wanted to do it because all the issues that she uh, cares about are stuff that I deeply care about, but it's different. You know, I was thinking about that old deadspin thing about no favor or discretion. You know, when you're a journalist, you're sort of governed by that principle. And when you're writing a book for somebody, it's, it's their book. You always have to remember it's their book. And I, I found that it was, there's a lot that's different about it. And a lot that's actually the same as writing any kind of profile or long form stuff. Wait, so do you have to, do you have to write in her voice? Is that even really a thing? Like, yeah, I think it's a thing, but I think that it's not the thing people think. I think people think it's an auditory thing only. Right. And actually what it really is, is this constellation of like ideas and insights and manner of speaking and, you know, the way they talk is part of it, but it's also how they think. And, and if you, you know, when you're talking about a voice, it's, it's this constellation of things that come through and, patterns of thought even, or, or just, um, you know, word choice or all those things. So again, it's not that different from writing anything else, but you do kind of just by spending so much time, you do, you want it to sound like them. You don't want it to sound like you. But how do you do that? It's really important to, um, I mean, really, really, it sounds fundamental, but just really, really listen, you know, without any pretext or judgment or just listen and ask them why and try to put it together and try to, you know, think it through. And then, and then you go back and, and you push or you challenge, you say that doesn't ring authentic or, you know, the logic doesn't track or, um, you know, when you say that, that sounds like bullshit or, Oh, I didn't know that. You know, why, why did that happen? And, you know, it's just the usual process where, and it comes through and then you can, you start to feel when you spend enough, that much time together, What's important to them? What are, what is um, like, you know, when they used to f- do photographs in a pan and the image mo- emerges o- onto the piece of paper, it starts to come up. You start to see it. Like I always think like um, a lazy word choice that I'm sure you used to do because we all used to do it at some point is you'd be like, if you want to sound conversational, right? You'd be like, after all, like that, that's a term I always, it now drives me crazy. <laughs> After all, he's really a left-hander, you know, like that kind of thing. So when you're trying to write in, is trying to write in someone's voice and trying to write conversational the same thing? Like, does it need to sound like you're having a conversation with the people? Um, Yeah, and she's like that. Um, There were some times where she, 
I'm trying to think. Oh, there was a word drolly. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, nah. You know, and it, it was more for just expediency or convenience. And she's like, nah, I would never say that. Uh, or, um, but I think, um, again, it, it depends. It, it, like, it has to sound like Jonathan Siegel was the editor and Billy says a few um, things. It was very funny. He's this very esteemed editor. And she says, she has some expressions like, geez, Louise. Uh -huh. And he said, he wrote me back once and he said, that's a bridge too far. He just, wow. he let her say El Choco. <laughs> but he said, no, geez, Louise. But it's interesting, right? Because um, <laughs> like, isn't that just, just because someone says geez, Louise a lot doesn't necessarily mean that they would write geez, Louise. Like, isn't it kind of a weird thing? Like you're trying to figure well, out. Yeah, and I told her um, that I think, you know, Jonathan is this classic editor. He's been, he's 76, 77 years old. His writers have won seven Pulitzers, you know, all these things. And he's, he's kind of the, the academy kind of guy. You right. know, he did Agassiz's autobiography. He was the editor for that. He did Arthur Ashes. He did Life on the Run with Bill Bradley. He's a classicist, you know. Yeah. Um, and I told Billy, I, Billy's sort of the other, you know, people's champion and all that. And I told her, I said, you know, you're in a, you're in a funny position because you're this consequential figure in history. And then anybody that knows you knows that you're this irrepressible kind of um, effusive person that does say that kind of stuff. But I think, I think he was always aware. And I think she is to an extent too, that, you know, what she's, she, she's talking about stuff that is historically significant and you want to convey it in a way that has the sort of seriousness it demands without being too arch. Right. You know, so it's a balance and, you know, you, you just have to find it. But, um, and I think he was right about that. I think there are times when you just, you know, you don't want to kind of just blow it off because she is somebody who, somebody said she seemed like she was like Forrest Gump. She was in every picture with everybody from like, you know, Obama to Gloria Steinem to Dolores Huerta to Mandela to, you know, I mean, you name it. Queen Elizabeth. I mean, it's, you know. Right. So right. Bobby Kennedy. So it's, there is that quality to her life that's um, needs to be respected. Is there, is there, when you're working on this book, like it's 496 pages, which is a thick book. It's not a small book. Yeah. I've had this talk with authors so many times when we talk about books, like, are people going to be intimidated by the thickness of a book? Well, I, my goal was to keep it to 400. Um, I think the appendix are like 40 some pages. Yeah. Just like, you know, mammoth. And somebody said to me, you know, it's all on the internet. <laughs> I was like, it's sort of true, but it's actually not. Like the, the records were so bad then. And this is Billy's, you know, wish to, make sure that's historically accurate. Um, there actually isn't complete records of her career or women's tennis in the beginning. And so we did a lot of original research to do those appendix, but the, the result was it's like 45 freaking pages, you know? That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, we could have put a thumb drive, you know, taped to the cover that might have been better. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's good. Well, this is that's funny though. You know, the other thing that happened is some of the books have what's called a deco edge. It's like a rough edge on the, yeah. on the where you leaf 
through. And somebody on Amazon wrote, they gave it one star because they said the binding is the poorest quality they've ever seen. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, like, dude, it's supposed to be that way. Like, it's <laughs> wait, I just want to say, uh, I've had many, I've had a lot of reviews where it's like poor binding, poor, bi <laughs> poor binding, and that those are your one star reviews are poor binding. And you're like, do you have any idea what you're doing to me? I know, Jesus Christ, man, come on. I know. I didn't bind the book. You know, and he put a picture up too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um. <laughs> Wait, was it a, um, you wrote a book about 15 years ago called The Rivals, uh, Chris Everett versus Martina Navratilova, their epic duels and extraordinary friendships, which was not with them. It wasn't written with them per se. It was your own book sort of via yeah. interviews. Is one way more satisfying than the other way? Do you prefer writing a book where you are not writing with someone? It doesn't matter. No, it didn't matter to me. I think it becomes a different book, but um I would do this again. It, you know, my my kind of litmus test is always just, is it something I really care about deeply enough to spend that much time, you know, because it's a big commitment. And it's, as you know, you've written so many great books. It's in, it's in your head all the time, you know? So it's like, um, it has to be something I really love. That one was just interesting to me. It, it kind of came by accident. I David Hershey, who was a publisher, it was right after Agassi beat, uh, Sampras beat Agassi in their dotage at the U.S. Open. And we, I saw him at a restaurant and he said, who's going to write the Agassi Sampras book? And I had been thinking about the one I did. And I said, that's not the rivalry book. It's, it's this one. And he said, I'd buy that book. And I said, I'd write that book. And that's how it happened. And he didn't end up buying it. He got outbid by somebody else. It wasn't like big money, but he got outbid and I ended up writing it. But that's that was the sort of genesis of that. I've been thinking about writing a book for the same things we were talking about. I wanted a career break and that was 2005. I wanted a career break because I was tired of the whole volatility of the business, you right. know? Right. And um, here we are, it's still going on. Before we continue with two writers slinging in, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who will be leaving for college next fall with dreams of becoming a high school history teacher. Fashion designer. I thought your dream was to educate. It is, but ever since you introduced me to 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, my eyes have been open to the wonders of fashion. I don't get it. Dad, my new dream is to come up with all sorts of amazing designs for 503 Sports. So when the USFL games start up later this year, I'll have created all this merchandise for fans to wear to the stadiums of their favorite teams. Go Wranglers! Go Stars! Go Stallions! Casey, the USFL died more than 30 years ago. It's not a thing anymore. Well, that makes my future look pretty bleak, doesn't it? All right, so I'm in the middle. I'm finishing up a book. I have a book due in October, which means I'll hand it in November. Uh, <laughs> about Bo Jackson. I'm writing a biography of Bo Jackson. Oh, yeah. And... Um, I'm losing my shit, right? I'm at the part point where I'm writing every day and you're trying to churn out whatever, 1,500, 2,000 words a day. Yeah. I'm seriously losing my mind. Like I'm actually, I think, sort of losing my mind where I have papers all over the room and I keep looking at Twitter because I'm bored, but then I have to get, and, and the whole thing, right? And I, all, and I have dreams about Bo Jackson where mm -hmm. I can't fall asleep because all I'm thinking about is Bo Jackson. I'm yeah. really at that point. I'm at yeah, that yeah. point where I'm like about to fucking Before snap. Yeah. How do you deal with this shit? I find book writing to be fucking nightmarish. I don't find it nightmarish, but it would be, I think it's nightmarish for the people around me. <laughs> I don't find it nightmarish. Like 
I get really linear okay. where I'll get up at six and I'll work till midnight. You'll get up at six in the morning and work till midnight. Oh yeah. And I'll eat like, you know, I'll eat like at my computer and I'll drink four Red Bulls after I've had two lattes and, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I'll just eat anything. I, you know, I don't, I lose weight, which is good, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, I don't like to be broken because by the time I get it all in my head up there, like, you know, who knows where it comes from when you're plucking out the words and sentences. I don't like to be interrupted when I finally get in that deep concentration place where you can, it's all available to you, all the information and ideas and, you know, all that. But I know what you mean. I, I've had days where I sit there and it's just like nothing's coming or I hate everything I wrote or, you know, I, um, I, it's too, it's too long. You know, I, I tend to write too long. I'm not like a, um, economist. <laughs> so that was always the joke about me with, uh, when I was at the Washington Post and I left, the, the joke was, um, I was always late and I always wrote too long and I got to pick when to leave. <laughs> they didn't whack me first. <laughs> do, you, do you, so is your, do you feel like for books, the best thing is to just put everything on the page, spew it out, write long and chop later? I've always done that with everything. If I write a column and it's supposed to be nine, I'll write 1400 words. I just do. Cause I have so much in my head. I, and I fall in love with all of it, you know? Or I just remember stuff or I think it's, you know, I want it to be, I want it to be stylistically nice, you know, or I want it to be anecdotal or I want it to be, you know, something. Or it used to drive me crazy when people didn't put the breaks, like at Sports Illustrated, when they don't put the line breaks where you want them. Oh, yeah. Drive me crazy. Drives me wait, crazy. Wait, we need to talk about this. So you and I were at Sports Illustrated. It's weird. I don't be insulted if the answer is yet. Have we ever been in the actual same room together? I don't know. I don't know either because you were at SI from 95 to 99. Yeah. I was at SI from 96 to 01. Um, but here's what interests me. Okay. Cause you talked about this. SI was the hardest editing place I've ever been in my life. I, it's probably the best place I've ever worked in my life as far as quality of output and regular blah, blah, blah. But the editing was insane. And sometimes your stories would come out unrecognizable. You'd have editors put in words, you didn't know what they meant. Uh, right. They'd be like, we're just going to move this paragraph here. And you're like, no, you can't just move that paragraph. What? Um, as a person who likes to write long and who obviously takes pride in her work, was that just a freaking gut-wrenching four years for you? Yeah. And, you know, the thing that you find out, the dirty little secret is that nobody there admits it. Like when they're out and about, like a lot, they don't, they don't admit that it's happening to them. Yeah. I mean, and, and I knew people that, um, that was the timing style, you know, that they would get people to like send in files and then some editor God in New York would sit there and digest it all into like a thousand words in time. And sports illustrated wasn't that, you know, bad about it, but they still, it was an editor, permanent culture of editors and the writers to me, I almost, I, I often felt as though they, they thought the writers were, um, with a few notable exceptions, were sort of replaceable in a way, um, and that it was it was the institution and the permanent culture of editors, and that you know whoever was the editor of the magazine at the time kind of told everybody else in the sports world what they were going to think that week, like what mattered. Yeah, 
And if they didn't think it mattered, it didn't matter. And, um, you know, that kind of um, unilateral existence, they got used to it. And so, yeah, it did bug me because I, you know, I remember saying to a guy once, why did you guys write, hire me? I was happy where I was. I mean, why'd you hire me? This is who I am. This is who I sound like. I've always been this way. By the time they hired me, I was, I forget, 36 maybe. You know, I've certainly written enough. But you came from where? They hired you from where? Washington Post. And you, I mean, I'm sure you were like me, like, Maybe weren't though. Like to me, SI was the dream, right? I wanted to work at SI. My dream growing up was to write for Sports Illustrated. I love Sports Illustrated. And I thought once you get to SI, you stay there for, uh, I'm going to stay here for 40 years. I'm going to be writing for this place forever. And this is going to be my thing. And I got hired in 06 and I left in, I got hired in 96 and I, I left in 02. Like I was like, I don't, I don't really enjoy this. I didn't enjoy it. I, and you know, it's a different experience there for women and, it actually wasn't an easy decision for me because I loved the Washington Post. I really did. Right. And Ben Bradley was still running it. And, you know, Henry Allen was still writing features and um, it was a really vibrant place and I loved it. And they had money to go do things and I was an enterprise writer, but so it wasn't an easy decision to me for me. And I knew that their history of um, treatment of women was very poor. Right. And so I just thought one of the things that tipped the balance was I had worked for one of the editors, Rob Flater at the national uh-huh. and had a great experience with him. And he's a great editor, the best editor I'd ever been with. He and David Granger, you know, up until that point. And so I thought he's there. And then I thought, um, and he was part of the people, you know, the little group that approached me to work there. And then the other thing was um, as a long form writer, it was the epitome you know, and so I thought I'll just go. If I don't like it, I'll leave. And that's what happened. I, I just found that um, when they switched to Bill Colson, it was not a good time for me. Mark Mulvoy hired me. Bill Colson was um, a difficult transition for me personally. And, um, and, you know, I think I got deposed when I was there for two lawsuits after he took over, discrimination lawsuits. And I think um, in one of them, they told me, I don't know if this is accurate, but that when he took over, there were 44 women. Within two years, there were 19 left. It just was sort of irrespective of your personality or talents, or it was an ellipse in every woman's career where you you do great, you get there, it's like, eh, and you leave and you do well again. And it's just not worth it. It's just, you know, and... I always felt I had agency to like, if I don't like it, I'll leave. And that's what I did. There are a couple of things that are interesting. I want to talk about this. Number one, I always remember being in a meeting. Remember how they would do, we were were probably in the same room because they did the, where they flew every writer in and they would do like the state of SI meeting and they take you out for a nice dinner. You went, you, you were at some of those, I'm guessing no. A couple. Yeah. I remember one time being in, in maybe my first one and number one, you're looking around and you're like, there's one black guy in this room, Phil Taylor. Yeah, there are yeah. two women in this room. If you were there at the time, because I remember uh, Kelly Anderson had been promoted. Yeah. Sally Jenkins had left. It was, and then I remember um, Phil Taylor asked an editor whose name rhymed with uh, Schmidt or Harry, whether, um, <laughs> whether they were, what they were doing to diversify the staff. 
And his response was, we're trying, but we can't really find any worthy oh, writers. Yeah. If anyone knows of any, we're obviously taking suggestions. Oh, good. That's and good. <laughs> I, I'm interested, like, because when we were there, like, I remember showing up and every office had the swimsuit calendar hanging up. Like, yeah. every editor's office had a half-naked woman or 80% naked woman hanging in their office. Yeah. Um, did you feel it mainly in the lack of opportunities in certain stories? Like, how did it actually manifest itself with you personally? I want to be careful and not be unfair. I can only tell you from my point of view. I don't know if they were guilty of this. I'll tell you how it felt. It felt like... Um, and there were a couple of times I went in, I would go up, I'd fly up to, once in a while to pitch ideas because everything was remote then. And a lot of people didn't re work remote then. And, you know, you want to kind of have a connection with these people. And I would go up and pitch ideas. And I, I was banging around the hallways, you know, going in people's offices, kicking a few ideas. And um, I walked into Flater's office and he, you know, my boss from the national and he said, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, you know, I, um, I'm pitching these ideas and uh, he said, like what? And I told him a few and he said, I said, but they told me it was already assigned. And he said, hang on, it's, that's not assigned. And he gets on his thing, beep, you know, calls the guy in and says, why don't you give her that story? That's not assigned. And yeah. the guy's like, oh, 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 absolutely. We'll do that. We'll do that. Absolutely. I'll do that. You know, right. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm thinking, I'm going to pay for this. And I did pay for it. The guy never gave me another story. But it was like you were treated like a stenographer sometimes. Yeah. And I actually said that at one point. I said to them, I said, I'm not a stenographer. You know, if you send me to do the story, I'm good enough to do the story. Was it hard to leave? Or were you like, fuck this? No, no. <laughs> no. It was important to get a job before I left. That was the only thing that was hard was, you know, staying long enough to you know, to wait till I have a job instead of just, you know, quitting because you just feel like, you know. Wait, you left from SI to Newsday. Yeah, yeah. I went from SI to Newsday too. I swear to God, <laughs> I went from SI to Newsday. I got a lot, I was done with sports. I was done with sports. I could not deal with sports. I remember that, yeah. They offered me a job writing for the front of the uh, page two, I think it was called magazine site. They're like, we just, this is when I knew newspapers were in trouble. All we want you to do is roam around New York City and find two or three long stories a month, 2,000 words. I was like, this is the greatest job ever. This is awesome. Right. And then one day they're like, yeah. So it was, I was there a year. It was great. They're like, we, the, the editor now wants every employee to come in four days a week and work from their desk. And stories are going to be a lot shorter. And I lived an hour and 20 minutes away. And I did not take a job. I did not leave Sports Illustrated to go to Newsday to sit on the... Uh, LIE yep. for an hour and 20 minutes. And that was when I left to write for, did you see when you were at Newsday, you were there 99 to 08. Was that a good barometer for you of the decline of newspaper and the influence of newspaper? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to say it's their fault because it was endemic to the whole business. But yeah, I, I think that, um, that nobody could figure it out. And so the only thing they knew to do was keep cutting staff, cutting coverage, cutting staff, cutting coverage. And um, it just seemed like they were just always waiting for Armageddon. And, and, uh, and the philosophies would change like the other places I was before and since would change every 10 minutes where one, this is what we're going to try now. And then it would be, no, we're going to try this. And then it would be, no, we're going to try that. And then it would, you know, and it just became sort of lunacy where, and you know now I hear of friends that are still in the business and and um, 
they actually get their their traffic printouts and the stories are chosen based on what resonated with people before. And I was like, so how does that make sense going forward? And somebody was telling me that they live in a city where the team is contending for the title, but they don't, it's a, it's a town with two teams in each sport, but um, they don't resonate as well in the traffic. So they're just not going to cover them. Yep. Even though they're contending for the championship. And it's just kind of like that one never happened before. Yep. So I just think they've got it figured out. And, and, you know, even ESPN, when I was there for 10 years, I used to always say, people would get frustrated. And I'd say, you know, it's a TV network that happens to have a website. And a lot of the things that have happened in, in the journalism business have been because of the mode of delivery has changed, you know. Right. And that has sort of had a consequence for the content. But I mean, if you look at ESPN now, it's the same. They used to do some really nice work, and now it's it's all videos. You yeah. Know, I mean, that's all that's left. So well, I was I was writing for Bleacher Report magazine for a while, BR Mag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hired by this guy Matt Sullivan, and we want to take on SI and ESPN. We want to do what they're doing. We want to write these long form, blah blah blah. My first story was I think twelve thousand words, blah blah blah. And now it's just a bunch of videos on a page because I think, but here's the thing. Here's where we're in trouble. They're basically saying we can put these videos up, but we can pay a writer X amount. And we're basically going to get the same number of views. Actually, we might get more views for the video. So from yeah. a business standpoint, what exactly is our benefit paying yeah, you an annual salary? Yeah, they're not wrong. I mean, that's what I mean. I used to say at ESPN, they're not wrong. And it's, this is, when we got, when we all got laid off, I know there was a, th- a couple thousand of us in 2017, I think. Um, it was like, I can see why they're doing it. I, I mean, I, I think now when young people want to talk, I just always say I would, I would, um, I'd, I'd master every platform so that you have choices, you know, like I am. Um, and, you know, even now, like when sometimes people call me about work, it's, it's about like, it's not about written work. It's about other stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I think if anybody who's hanging on um, to just write, it's really tough. You have to, you have to have other a presence in other places, you know, um, and, and plan on making money there. And if you want to write, write the script for a, a treatment for, you know, a, a, a TV series or a show or a documentary or a, podcast pitch or something else, you know, a book yeah. proposal, but even books are getting tough. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel, I don't know how you feel about this, but um, I feel you start so far ahead if you're doing some iconic figure versus like, if you just had this super, super fantastic idea about something obscure, unless you're like Lauren Hillenbrand, it's, it's a little tough, you know? Wait, I love that you brought that up. Um, I always say the two books that defy in our world that defy sort of that model are Seabiscuit and uh, Boys in the Boat, where you're yeah. like, yeah. But that's lightning in a bottle. That is yeah. absolute lightning in a bottle. Can, do you think people can explain it? I can't. How do you explain a long ago horse and a bunch of Olympic rowers from 1936? Yeah. I think. How do you explain that? Yeah. Great writing, I hope, you know? Yeah, I mean, I... I I haven't read Boys in the Boat yet, but I am, I, um, in her case, I think she's extraordinary. I agree with you on the, um, like every book I've written, some have sold really well, some haven't sold well, right? But 
86 Mets, big topic. Barry Bonds, big topic. Roger Clemens, big topic. Brett Favre, big topic. Bo Jackson, big topic. Showtime Lakers, big topic. Shaq Kobe. Like, my books aren't selling because of me. They're selling because of the topics. And I think if you're aware of that, like you've written two books about big topics. Right. I just don't think people are buying books because of us, because of our names. And I say that as a huge fan of yours. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, just the, it's almost like, I think, being like a, you know, some jazz singer, you might be really great and you're still working the basement clubs, you know, like, right. Right. you know, like, and it's like, I remember, and I realized this in college, I was walking through the student union, this woman was singing and it was so beautiful. And I went and I watched the show, you know, just, it was one of those student shows and I was walking away and I'm thinking like, what does it take to make it? You know, like, yeah. what does it take? And it's, it's like, it's really unsatisfying when someone tells you, oh, it's really serendipitous. And you think like, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really? It is. I mean, I think hard work matters. I think hard work matters. I do, and, I do too. Yeah. But um, you better find some fucking way to enjoy it. Because if you don't, it's going to be miserable. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah. Are you like me at all? Like, um, my dream was to become a sports writer. Yours as well when you were growing up? Uh, I changed because, you know, remember, there weren't any women. So I this is funny. I thought Shirley Povich was a woman. Oh, funny. I thought Lee Montville was a woman. <laughs> so Shirley Povich was syndicated in the Pittsburgh press. I grew up in Pittsburgh uh -huh. and I would read his columns. And, you know, he was fabulous. Um, he and Red Smith, to me, were on par. And and then I got to work with them later, which was spectacular. But I thought he was a woman. So I didn't really know that there weren't any women when I was really young. I was just a sports nut because I grew up in Pittsburgh when all those teams, the Steelers and the Pirates were winning titles and even the Penguins weren't bad, you know? So, um, so I didn't really switch into it until I was well into college. I was, I, I was wanted to be in architecture, but I'm an idiot with math, no matter how hard I try. And then I was really into biology and genetics and all that stuff because I had some great teachers in high school. And so I, I was on this twin track because I had, when I was a little kid, I had a neighborhood newspaper that I um, made and went around and sold. What was it called? <laughs> the Broadway Dispatch. <laughs> Wait, and you would do it in your house? Yeah, my mom was a teacher and she at a Catholic school and they had this mimeograph machine and she brought it home and I would make the stencils and I'd write stories about my neighbors, my brother and I. And I was, God, I think we just got high on the fumes because we thought it was hysterical. You know, we'd be like writing this in the basement and we'd be like howling, laughing at ourselves. And I think we were just sniffing the mimeograph machine. Um. Would people pay for it? People would buy it? Yeah, man. Are you kidding? Quarter. Do you still have them sitting around your house somewhere? I have a couple. My aunt told me, I don't know, not so long ago, she still had a few. My godmother. So she gave them to me. <laughs> and did that put the love of something in you? Well, my dad was a graphic designer, an artist. And when I was a kid, they had always told me, both my parents, they wouldn't buy us other stuff. But if you ever wanted a book, they would never say no. Wow. So I would always get books and read books. And so I had a, a kind of good upbringing that way as far as background. And, and then in high school, teachers would always encourage me and tell me that I was good at it. But I never really thought, I, I, was, I came from a really blue collar place. My parents didn't make much money. And I thought I have to get out of college with a job. Right. You know? And so when I went, 
I was going to do this other stuff and writing was the only thing I loved. So that's how I got into it. But I got into it late. I was always taking writing classes because I enjoyed it, but I didn't really go full scale until I was second term junior. I always try to find the oldest story I can find by someone. Here's a, here's a challenge for you. I'm going to read your lead to a story. I'm going to leave out the school and the name of the star. If you get this, you win. Okay. With underdog blank, Holding a precarious one-point lead with just over two minutes left in the game, blank star back, star back, and big play specialist Billy Callahan went in motion right, veered upfield at the snap, and rocketed past the blank secondary. This is in the yeah. Pittsburgh Press, uh, November 15th, 1981. It is? That was when I was an intern. They wouldn't let me write sports. I was on the city desk, and I would go do that on my own on the weekends. Wait, you would actually say, I'm going to be at this game, and I'll send you something? No, I told them I want to be a sports writer and they wouldn't give me the internship. Um, my school paper, I was the sports editor at the Pitt News and I wanted, you needed an internship to graduate. They were telling me to go to sports information. I said, I don't want to do that. And they said, uh, no, you really should go. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And I had a big fight with the, um, the advisor uh, um, and the, uh, to the newspaper and the advisor of the journalism department. And I said, let me go for the interview. Just let me go to the interview for the Pittsburgh press internship. Uh And so I had the interview with this guy, Leo Coberlin. And when I walked in, I had a little, this is so pathetic. Now I had a little scrapbook eclipse from the pit news, like in a blue bind, you know, like binder, like, and he looked at me and he said, you have the internship. (laughs) And I said, seriously, and he said, yeah, you have it, but you have to go to the city desk. And I said, all right. So they put me on the city desk, but I went to the sports editor and said, I want to be a sports writer. Can I do high school games? So they let me do high school games. Was the general idea basically women don't write sports? Yeah. That was it. Women don't write sports. Yeah. How would you know what you're talking about? You know, you didn't play sports. And I played women's sports, but, you know, so what? But I used to say, well, you know, if you ascribe to that, you wiped out about, you know, 20 centuries of Western thought because people write about Aristotle and they weren't fucking Aristotle either, pal. Right. You know? That's good. Out of my way. Yeah. You know? Get out of the way. So, I, you know, you just, I mean, it was, it was worse then, but I, I, you know, I actually, I actually cried when I read this. One of my colleagues wrote a story for the New York Times, former colleague, you, like in June about being raped when she was a 22 year old sports. Oh, player. I read that. Amazing. And I, when she came to Newsday, I took her out to lunch and said, if I can help you, you know, anything, just let me know. And we had a nice lunch and the whole thing. And it was like, we kept in touch all these years, just loosely, you know, cheering each other when something good happens or something sad happens, you say, you know, thinking of you. And when I read that, I just, I just, got all choked up about it because I was so sorry for the pain that she had to go through. Right. You know? right. And there's a lot of women like that whose stories, they got knocked sideways or they just quit. You know, they just quit. And I just, I mean, I was lucky that I didn't have a choice. Like I had to make it, you know, I had to make it because I wasn't going to go back to my little steel town neighborhood and work in the pizza joint or something. Did you find as a woman working in the field, like, um, one of my favorite responses to a ball player being gross. I forgot who the writer was. She, she was AP. I think she was in Pittsburgh when Dave Parker was naked 
and invited her to quote unquote suck on this. And she said, I would if I could find it beneath all that fat. <laughs> There's uh, a lot of variations of that comeback. <laughs> did you find, have you found in your career, it is better to be that way or to ignore, just ignore the comments and the stupidity? No, no, it's better because they're doing it for the benefit of the people around you too. And you've got to cut that, you got to stop it. And I always felt, especially back then, I don't know, it's been a long time since anything happened with me, but um, at the at the time, I wasn't so sure about the people governing the leagues, except the NBA, like David Stern always told us, that was my first beat. And he, there were three of us women, and he told all of us individually, if you have any trouble, you call me directly and I will take care of it. Wow. So guys knew that, and I do think it helped, you know, but um, other sports, it was not, it wasn't like that. But I would, even with the Pistons, when I covered the Pistons, I would handle it myself. Like if, um, I remember they traded for Mark Aguirre and. Adrian Daly yeah. for Mark Aguirre. Yeah. And he had been there maybe like three weeks and I had been on the beat like three years and we go to Chicago and he had some of his, you know, some of his boys come in the locker room and they're all, rah, 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 you know, doing the whole thing, like the syncophant thing. And I walked in and he starts going, whoa, 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 you know, and making a big scene. Like, I don't know why, just cause they were there. And I just, you know, and we were on good terms, he and I. I liked him. I liked him a lot. I still like him. And I just walked up to him and I said, you know, I've been here for three weeks, man. And you see me every day. Shut the fuck up. Like, stop it. Right. Let's just stop it. You know, now your boys are here and you're going to do this to me. Stop it. Did it work? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, I've had, I mean, there's been stupid stories. There was, I mean, a lot of times other sports writers were a problem. There was one guy that said he was going to punch me um, in the face. Why? They got drunk in the hospitality room at the NBA finals and were calling all the Pistons and waking them up. Then they tried to blame it on me. And they called me deep throat. And I, you know, that has a sexual connotation. Yeah. And, uh, they had written it on a bill on a tablet in the hospitality room that was usually for when the buses were going to the arena. You know, John Ed Howard deep throat. And I said, who did it? And uh, a couple people were like, I don't know. And then somebody told me. <laughs> so he's and they said he said he was going to kick your ass. And if he wasn't big enough, he'd get some help to do it. And so I saw him in the hallway and I just told him, I said, I want you to hit me right here and don't miss. I said, cause I'm going to own your house, your dog, your car, you know, your whole life. I said, so don't miss. That's awesome. Little man. <laughs> That's so good. That's awesome. Have you seen that guy? Yeah, in years? Crazy. It's not like I'm brave or anything else. You just get like crazy. Like I'm not going to put up with this the rest of my life. Like I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I really at any juncture, I really, if it got too miserable, I wouldn't stop. But I never felt like I was defenseless or um, without choices. I just thought, like, I'm choosing to be here. It's my world, too, and I'm not going to take it, you know. But um, there's times when, when you just have to kind of let it roll. But um, I just firmly believe you're better off to just deal with them directly and make, you f make them feel you as a person. Yeah. You know? And I have to say, I was in black majority leagues, and 
you know, I mean, they're all sort of that way. Baseball's not, but baseball was by far worse. The black majority leagues, the guys get it, you know, way better. I, I have and, always felt that way too. Yeah. I, I just feel like if it wasn't for black guys, I wouldn't have had a career, you know. Baseball, I always found the worst, and I covered baseball at SI, but I always yeah. thought baseball, most narrow-minded, most sheltered, you know. Yeah, and so, um, and I didn't do too much baseball, and I, you know, I, until I got to Newsday, I didn't really, I, I tried to um, do as little as I can because I didn't enjoy it. Right. And, right. you know, forget that it's, I mean, it's so tedious. Right. Know, Wait up. Season. I'm required to ask everyone who appears on this uh, podcast this question. Um, what is the angriest the subject has ever been at you? There's a couple times. They're kind of funny. They always are in hindsight. They're horrible in the moment. Yeah, no. Can I tell you two? Please. Okay. Chuck Daly, who I loved, was the coach of the Pistons. You know, he he was very good to me. You know, years later, we were friendly. Like, I... He was in Orlando and he, you know, I called him and he showed me his house they gave him for coaching. He was, we were really good friends, but, and he almost got fired every other week, but before they won. And he was mad at me because they had some team meeting. Jack McCloskey, the GM was always undermining him. They always had this thing, no matter how well they did, Jack thought they should have, he would have done better if he were the coach. And so you know, they would, we would be at practice and some seven foot guy would walk in and would say, who's that? And he'd say, Chuck would say, I don't know. And Jack would just add somebody to the roster and whack someone and not tell him. So it was that kind of on the ledge existed. So there was this, <laughs> there was this team meeting and some of the guys told me what happened and what they're unhappy about and blah, blah. And we're in New York City and it was like a little scoop, you know. So we're in New York City in the garden press room and he comes up to me and he's mad at me and he's like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Why are you writing about that? you got to learn to be more like, and he mentioned a guy in Detroit who was been around forever. And he would write stories like the meatballs at, at Tiger stadium are the best of any buffet in, you know, uh, and he's yelling at me about this and I should learn a lesson from this guy. And I said, I would rather put my mouth on a tailpipe and kill myself. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then you see each other the next day and it's like, how you doing? He's like, you need me? I'm like, nah, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. So that was one. The other one was, and this is not funny, but when um, Monica Sellis was attacked by Gunther Parch and disappeared, yeah. the first story they gave me at Sports Illustrated was go find Monica Sellis and do a story on her. Thanks. And I had sort of... I had ethical objections to it because she had declared she didn't want to be found. Right. Yeah. And, um, but then she did turn up in public at these uh, um, award show and some people, and I was able to cobble something together. But one of the things that was going around was this story that when she was skipped Wimbledon, there was a rumor that she was pregnant and that her agent called her. And it, I think the rumor at the time was she was dating Donald Trump, which is just horrifying to but yeah. even I hope it's not true. You don't like Donald Trump. I know it's weird. The story was that the agent called her and said that she was a defending champ at Wimbledon and she was skipping it. And she said, just let me tell something. Just let me tell them anything, please. Just let me make some statement. Let me tell them you're not pregnant. And the rejoinder from her was, how do you know I'm not? Which I don't know if she was or not, but it was, it was 
the story was about her family's secrecy and fear of, of things. And then the horrible irony that had happened to her, that she got attacked because her father was a conscientious objector in the war and they were afraid of being, you know, anyway, they had all these fears and she traveled incognito and everything else. And then she's the one that gets stabbed. So the agent calls me livid screaming at me, like, how could you print that? How could you print that? How could you print that? And I said, you know, I'm sorry, but I have to tell you, it's, it's all over the place. I heard that story from like five people. And she said, well, didn't it, didn't it make an impression on you at all that it never got printed anywhere? And I said, no, I get stuff like that all the time. Right. You know, yeah. but she was, she was really mad at me. And she said, you will never get any access to any of our athletes again. She was at one of the big firms, but you know, it wasn't true. She was just mad. Yeah. Was just I always mad. Say that. Wait, let me follow up. I love this question. I'm going to say you have to answer this. Who's the biggest <laughs> asshole athlete you ever dealt with? <laughs> asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Jack Morris was a pretty nasty piece of I heard quite an ordinary guy, right? Oh, obscene to women. Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure he's just obscene in general, but Jennifer Fry, the late, great Jennifer Fry, was just out of Harvard at college and work in Detroit. And he said, I don't talk to women unless I'm on top of them or they're on top of me. Ugh. And you know, he just got in trouble for imitating an Asian person on the radio. I mean, the guy has nine lives. He was, he was difficult. Um, but you know, again, I didn't have to deal too much with him. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, some of the guys like Barry Bonds was nice to me after you push back a little, like some guys, you know, we're actually all right. Um, the key is to push back, right? The key really is like most people, like they, they're testing you. They're surrounded by their buddies. As you said, they're in this world. They want to show that they're the big boss. And then if you push back, it kind of snaps them out of it. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. I just think, you know, I, I never felt like they were, better than me that sounds awful but i i just never felt like i just want to talk to somebody and get out like you know like that's all and so i didn't really i wasn't really invested in being friends or you know being a bro or you know like you know hey dude knocking fists next time i see them they're not i just wanted to get my stuff and get out you know so it was easy for me it was pretty transactional and so it was um i never was conflicted about it and so i'm you know i I mean, there are times when, you know, like you're not going to get any support. And so you can't you can't blow up and do whatever. So I would just go right close to them and just say, you got to stop or this is going to turn out badly for you. Right. Stop. I'm not going to do this. Stop. There was a story where um, I can say his name because he's dead. Kirby Puckett. He, he hit on me at a game. This was years ago. And I, in fact, it was Bo Jackson was coming back from the hip surgery. All right. And I was in Minneapolis to do a story and he had just had a baby and he's talking to some TV guy and about the little fella, the little fella's keeping me up at night. Whoa, the little fella and Kirby Puckett's supposed to be one of the best guys in baseball. Right. So he gets done. And I said, you have a couple minutes. I, you know, I wanted to ask you about Bo coming back and it was nice. He talked to me and next night I'm still there because Bo didn't play. And I see him next to the batting cage and he says to me, um, Hey, I checked in. I checked into you, and uh, why don't we hook up next time I'm in Baltimore? And I said, I said, you know what? Why are you saying this to me? You know? And he said, uh, I, know, I know all about you. Why don't we? You know? Why don't we hook up when we're in Baltimore? And I said, 
does this really work on anybody? I said, you know, you meet me for five minutes and now you're saying, let's hook up in Baltimore. And I said, what about the little fella? That's awesome. That's so good. <laughs> what about the little fella keeping you up on, you know? So he's like, oh, it must be a black thing. And I said, you're ridiculous. I go upstairs. I sit next to this woman. And that was my first experience with him. And I said to her, I can't believe what just happened. I always heard he was such a great guy. And this, she tells me that she did a, a freelance job with him and he kept hitting on her. At the end, he said to her, let's get this straight up front. If I, and it was something criminal, you know, I guess I should be careful, mm-hmm. even though he's dead. Um, how much would it take to keep you quiet? Wow. And I said, are you serious? And he, she said, yeah. And I said, did you tell anybody? Because Andy McPhail was the GM. I said, did you tell anybody? And she said, no, I'm afraid they'll just run me off and yank my credential and everything else. And I said, I've got to tell you, if that happened to me, I would have walked up here. I would have written the story. And I don't care what would happen. I don't, I don't care. You know you're not going to win because he was so popular. But I wouldn't care. Somebody joking about rape, is, it's not funny to me. You know what the sad thing is, though? The aftermath would have been huge public defense for Kirby Puckett. Exactly. Uh, just some gold digger trying to make money off his name, blah, 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 blah. And you never write again because you're now known as a gold digger who is trying to write off Kirby Puckett. And where people are slashing your tires and throwing trash at you and everything else. Exactly. exactly. You know, you leave the country. But um, there was a postscript because... I wrote the anecdote as part of a column about Lisa coming back from Australia and Don fear to his credit, the head of the baseball union called me and said, I want to know who that guy is. And I said, I got to ask my friend if it's okay to tell you. Uh And she said, yeah. And uh, they called him into the office and said, you better cut this bullshit or you're going to, you know, you're going to be in serious trouble. Right. I don't think he did. I mean, he came in and he was good for like a month and then he was back to it. But, um, and when I asked other guys, they said, Oh yeah, he's a dog. And I said, then why are you guys all writing this stuff about the cherubic Kirby Puckett, the lovely, you know, cheerful Kirby Puckett, like when it's not true at all and you know it. Yep. So, I mean, I think that's one of the best reasons to have diverse voices is that, you know, a better version of the truth, has a better chance of coming out. I just want to say, if you write a, uh, if you ever write your memoir, I have the, uh, I have the title for it. And it is, um, <laughs> I can talk about this because he's dead. <laughs> well, I told, you know, David Black is, we share an agent, David Black. And we were, got together a couple weekends ago and I told him, if I ever write a memoir, I'm going to call it crabgrass because you can't kill me. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. We were laughing. Yeah. I said, I already got the title, Crabgrass. Well, Jeanette, I'm a, uh, again, I, I'm actually really happy to, that we did this because I feel like we've never had a face-to-face conversation, just DM or whatever. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a big admirer of your career, like a really big admirer of your career and your work. Oh, and same work to you. Same to you. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Jeanette Howard, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Jeanette on Twitter at Jeanette Howard and purchase All In wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.